makes me feel so at home. I mean, just um, any prayers, any prayers for tonight. What stage does he know? No. No. What's his name? Jeff. Jeff. <clears throat> yep. Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um. Wait a minute. I didn't finish this. Cut my mind. It's just losing it. Sorry. God's patient. I know he is. What I wanted to say at the beginning of this is that I, you know, I wasn't going to include Jane Austen, and then I did, and what happened was that I was so grateful that we did, because my criticism is still the same. I mean, it would be my reason for not putting her on. But I'm just amazed, and I've said this to you a couple of times when I've gone back to teach a work that I haven't taught for a while for this group, because it just makes me aware of how much a book matures in time. <laughs> God, I love her, and she doesn't do, you know, um, what I what I would say would be important to keep her on this list. But I'm so grateful that we're doing it, and I want I hope I can do justice for the reasons that's true for me. It's going to be really important. Um, and you know that behind all of our concerns would be this question: Is Christ present here or not? Jane Austen was Methodist. Um, she's looking back to a Catholic world. It's gone. I mean, it goes out with Shakespeare and, you know. She's Methodist, so she's Christian, um, but she doesn't belong to a sacramental world. Um, so we're not getting evil the way we would in other people. Um, but anyway, I'm grateful to you all, particularly some of you for pushing on this and being glad about it. I'm, I wish we could do Mansfield. Um, we're not gonna do it, but I think you'll be glad um, because if you haven't read Pride and Prejudice before, you're in for a surprise. If you have read it, I hope tonight you'll see things that you didn't see when you read it before, because it's a rich, rich work. Okay? It's her lightest work. She said of it after she was done with it, too light, too bright. And I agree with her assessment. I agree. But still, what she does is brilliant. It's a wonderful affirmation of womanhood. Um, she shows the worst of women, she shows the very best. It's a wonderful affirmation of the gifts that women have. Um, they can be misused, are, but in Jane Austen you see them at their best. Um, um, Elizabeth's got faults, but she undergoes a conversion, she sees her pride, she turns, as does Darcy. Um, Flannery, I mean uh, Fanny in Mansfield Park is as close to any image of Christ in a woman that I've ever seen. In, in fiction. In fiction, okay. So there are two great books. Um, for those of you who want to take the time, read Mansfield Park because it really is worth it. But anyway, I just wanted to say thanks for bringing me back because I wasn't planning to go here and I'm glad we're here. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you again. Um, amazing. You know, it, it, it's like each day is a resurrection. We come back to life again. 
um, that we could have done this for so many years. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, let all of us, all of it, the work that we're doing, help us to be more aware of your presence in our lives where ordinarily we won't see you. The sacred is crucial in a Mass. It's absolutely crucial that it be there. This problem we took on is you, you, you are never not here. You're always here. Um, so you're doing some work that doesn't always show itself in sacred art. We know that um, in the work that we're doing, um, can we find you? Are you at work? Um, will it make us more attentive, more sensitive um, to your presence and what you're doing where ordinarily we don't see you? I ask a special blessing on all of us that that be so. That we live you more completely, take seriously what we learn from these poets and make it living. Um, how great you are in all your gifts. I ask for a special blessing on a friend of ours, Bob, whose age is showing everywhere and um, who knows when his end will be, but be with him in the, in the fading experiences that he's having. Um, keep his faith strong. Help all of his difficulties draw him closer to you. Um, let that be with his family as well. Karen, sorry, the name of... Jeff. Watch over Jeff. Um, must have been a shock to hear the news um, for him and his loved ones. Be with him. Um, keep his faith strong in the cross that he may have to bear, probably will bear. Keep him strong. Um, let him hold on to the belief that whatever suffering he undergoes will draw him closer to you. That's our belief. Um, help all of us to live that. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. John Donne's The Good Morrow. Um, there's so much more to say about Donne, but you know that he was at the late end of the Renaissance, and if you know anything about the Renaissance, you know it was a high period of art. Michelangelo painting, sculpture, go wherever you were, music. Um, um, the Renaissance that began in Italy 200 years earlier slowly made its way west, right? Picture it. So if the Renaissance starts, the mid, say mid 14th century, somewhere in there in Italy when all these academies, Platonic and Aristotelian are developing and there's this new outpouring of knowledge and a love of knowledge and it carried over into poets doing artistic work in every mode, sculpture, painting, music. When it finally gets to England, um, it, it, it has an overwhelming effect on the English culture. Renaissance is a high, high point. Shakespeare, Milton, epics, drama, poetry, music. Music was everywhere. Um, Dunn, who's probably the greatest lyric poet ever to write, and he's certainly the greatest love poet in the Renaissance, Dunn almost wrote nothing that he didn't compose in terms of couplets. If he was writing letters to friend, he'd, he'd write them in running couplets. You know, it's just, everybody had a musical ear, so lyrics everywhere. Um, and Dunn was the greatest of the lyric poets. There were a large number of them. We're going to read 
his poems on perfect love. And one of the reasons, let me just emphasize this now because I'm not going to talk about the poem. I'm going to make two points about it and then get to our, our work. Um, when Dunn talks about love, he almost, perfect love, he almost always talks about it in terms of a man and a woman becoming one. And you know from our church that's a central image. And um, a few weeks ago when we did this um, theology to body thing, what's the name of it, dog? You're better than you are or are you more than you are? Christopher West? You were made for more? Yeah. Remember I, I gave you a brief review of that talk. By the way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be here in Dallas again in May. I'll, I'll, as we get closer to that date, I'll tell you so that, and I would encourage all of you to go then. But, but at the heart of that, if you remember, was the claim that the most important thing, of the, the, the most important distinguishing mark of the Catholic Church was marriage. The father looking out for his children, sending the bridegroom to his, his people. Initially, you know that Christ, Christ came for the chosen people. We saw that very clearly. And over and over, so many of his parables are inviting the, the, you know, the guests, the tribe, and being rejected parable after parable. And he calls on somebody else. So he turned from the chosen people to everybody else, the Gentiles. And that becomes one of the hallmarks of what he does. But um, marriage is at the center of everything he does. He's presented as the bridegroom coming for his bride. The, the readings in the last couple of weeks about the virgins, um, several of them had to do with the bridegroom um, coming in. So one of, the, one of the ways in which you're asked to see Christ is as the groom who's come for us. And remember I told you that I thought it was wonderful what Chris West did. He, he described the aisle leading up to the altar in terms of the aisle that the bride and groom walk up when they're married. When they're married. And the, the, the feast that is presented then when Christ offers himself to everybody. It's a banquet. So, so all of that stuff's lost in the modern world. It should not be lost on us. And I hope it isn't lost in us here in this group. But hold on to that image. Because one of the, one of the things that Dunn, did, Dunn does in his love poems and show that um, the universe was created in love by a God of love and all people were called to participate in. So when a man and woman came together, the love was greater themselves because it takes place in a universe created in love. Yeah? So, um, over and over again, he keeps describing these in these love poems a man and a woman becoming one. Just hold on to that because it'll run through every done poem that we read, okay? That's looking forward to what I'm going to say about Austin. So that's one of the reasons I'm choosing these poems, even though there's a couple centuries apart, okay? Dunn is right at that point where the Reformation has taken over, but he's, he was raised Catholic. He, um, he becomes an Anglican priest late in his life, but that had to be a real struggle for him. But this is John Dunn, The Good Morrow. The second thing that I wanted to say, remember the scene in um, Scripture when Christ and Nicodemus meet, and they talk about being reborn. <laughs> it's, a comic, it's a comic scene. And Christ talks about being reborn again, and Nicodemus said, how can you do that? How can, you're supposed to jump back out of the womb? You know, it's, it's a funny scene. And Christ is saying, no, you're reborn in the spirit. You have a new life. So hold on to that parable and the spirit of it, what Christ came to do, 
in the good moral because the good moral is about that moment when lovers become one and their lives are changed. It's the good moral. You wake up and suddenly everything in the world is different from what it used to be. Is that clear? That's absolutely at the heart of this poem. When you, when you love, you, you will not look at the world the same anymore because you see it through different eyes. Okay? So in every one of the love poems, he's describing that condition when a man and a woman marry and become one. And I'm trusting we all know, well, wait to, well, I'll, I'll wait to go beyond that, but John Donne's The Good Moral. I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? So, but this all pleasures fancies be. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, t'was but a dream of thee. To be clear, no matter what love I had before, even if I didn't know it at the time, now I see it was a dream. It wasn't the real thing. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear, for love, all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere. The whole world becomes united, one um, in love. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world, each hath one, and is one. My face in thine eye, thine in mine, appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike, that none can slacken, none can die. I, I'll just, any, I don't want to delay this, I want to get on, but any questions or are you all clear what he's saying and how important this unity, this oneness is? How it unifies everything in the universe without sharp north, without west? Where can we find two better hemispheres? Whatever dies was not mixed equally because once you love, you become one with each other. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike that none can slacken, none can die. We won't go off to other loves. Yeah, this love will hold us. Okay, any quick comments or questions or... It's a beautiful poem, I, and I, I feel awkward sometimes leaving these poems, but we've got other work to do too, so, but I'm glad to take a minute if anybody, um, actually go. The line that you said, um, if ever any beauty I did see which I desired to God was but a dream of thee, um, I appreciate your remark that it was not real, it was a dream, but I, I also think it means it was a any beauty or joy that he had before was a prefiguration of the ultimate. Yes, yeah, God. yeah, yes. It's not that it wasn't real, it was... Well, it wasn't, finally, but... A shadow compared yeah, to it. Yeah, but sort of like It wasn't, but, but it also is an anticipation of, because the love they have is the real thing. It is, 
Other things were but a shadow. They could have been in anticipation, but they're not, they're not the real thing. Um, he's talking about, I'm, I'm trusting everybody sees this, that what happens when you become one can't help but change the world. I mean, it'll change the way we do everything. I'm glad to do this because we're going to enter a world right now <laughs> that's sort of amazing to look at in some ways, but I've got to, I want to hold off on, on uh, Jane Austen for just a second. I want to take a few minutes to review and go back to Top Gun. Any quick comments before? I'm just going to try to do a quick review of the movie just the way I always do because it's, it's always good to reinforce something to bring it back and keep it alive. Any comments about Top Gun Maverick or what you carried away from it or anybody? Oh, by the way, um, Suzanne and I have not got the, we have not uploaded the, you know, the comments that I made before the movie and my comments after, but we will. So any, if anybody wants to go back to them, just be patient, they'll, they'll be up, but we haven't gotten up yet. You all, left here, you all left here so excited. No comments? What's going on here? It was a great movie. It was a great night. And your notes, I mean, my son who was on your email list, he read all this stuff. He goes, I can't believe how cool he made that. It, it, your notes were fantastic. Huh, thanks. Yeah, it really um, brought it all into it. It's not just a movie. It, it was... Uh, movie about all the things that you said in your Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because my impression, my own right, my own mind right now, it is falling apart. You guys have to suffer this weekly? God! God! What? Oh, it is, Connie. It is. It is. God. God. And as we age, this was Say that again. As we all age. Age. Say why. What does age have to do with this? Well, because he's aging and so they... Oh. Know, and, and you can tell just when you go to the store how young people look at you. It's, it's very, very different. <laughs> it's very dismissive, but I remember being that age. Yes, it's, it's true. Like, it's, it's like, a, move the car, old man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, even my son, he's like, get going, old man. Or old, old, or old woman. Yeah, and it's like you're careful, and then all of a sudden you find yourself there, and fading, and there just see the beauty of life. Yeah, yeah. And this movie kind of was. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, yeah. To just help the next generation and yeah. gracefully age. Yeah, you would hope that. What a, it's a wonderful way to put it, the way you've just put it. That so. Okay, quick, quick notes. Um, remember one of my first comments, I believe when we started, is that it's, you've heard me say again and again that we don't read well. And most of us who think we do usually miss something when we aren't aware that we're missing it because we think we see so well. And one of the things that we've been dealing with from the beginning is that fact that something in the book shows human beings not reading the world that they're in well. 
That's true of the Iliad with Achilles, certainly with Agamemnon. It's true in um, Merchant of Venice when we started together. Most of the people in that book read badly. Portia is an extraordinary reader. She could not have made that, she could not have reconciled those two sides if she hadn't been an extraordinary reader. So one of the great themes that we've had from the beginning is characters don't understand the world that they're in. And the poet helps us to see that and he should raise questions about how well we read. And it seems to me one of the most important themes in Maverick 2 is just that. Because we're, um, in that movie, both movies are combined. Maverick, Top Gun Maverick, is layered. It contains within its own plot that first plot. And if you haven't seen the first movie, you're not going to see that. You think you see that movie and understand it, and you don't know how much you're missing. It's a reminder of how important it is to see a work in a larger context and in its tradition. That's at the heart of the Catholic Church. But it, it, to, to the extent that the Protestant world cuts itself off from the past, it cuts itself off from depths of meaning to help us see the reality right before us. So we should have a help in that regard that no other religion has. So one of the most important themes of Top Gun 2 is growing up and carrying more of the past with you that changes the way you see. Everything that he does in that second movie shows he's carrying the past. He can see things. And we went through it. Remember the opening three scenes make that obvious. The first scene is a maneuver scene in Top Gun 1. The first scene in the two is this maneuver scene. The second scene in one is a bar scene. The second scene in two is a bar scene. Um, the third scene in one is um, the briefing scene. The third scene in um, two is, a, is the briefing scene. And yet in every one of those scenes in Top Gun 2, the meaning is utterly reversed. In one, um, um, Maverick does everything for his own ego. In the first scene in, in two, he's trying to do something to save a program. In the bar scene in one, he's out to get this girl. Bar scene two, and he meets Petty, and the two of them look at each other in a kind of pensive wonder. She's got a good sense of humor about it. She says to him, who now have you <laughs> peed off? You know, she's, because um, she knows him. Um, so immediately there's a humor. He's not coming on to a woman in passion. Neither one of them is. And she even says, let's, get, let's not get started. It never works out with us. You know, she's very guarded. Three, the briefing takes place. Um, Cruz comes in and he sees the woman he tried to make the pass on is the leader of the group. In um, Top Gun 2, um, all these men who make fun of this, this old man, you know, and they toss him out of the bar and say, thanks, Gramps. They're waiting for the instructor who shows up. Maverick. So you're all following, right? To see the fullness of every one of those episodes depend on our having seen the first. And you know that one of the purposes of this class, it's like the Eucharist. I've been making the comparison forever. One of the reasons for doing this is because, according to our beliefs, we should be carrying a tradition with us in everything we do. Do we? I don't think we do in America. So one of the reasons for doing this class is to receive that tradition, learn from it, carry it, so that it helps us. Yeah? So that's one of the principal themes of the movie. 
Um, one of the questions that I have, we said, I asked the question, is Christ here? I want to put this a little bit differently because it, it, it asks for a finer distinction, and I'm, I'm not sure we can go anywhere, with, but I'll ask you. When we're watching, a, if we go into church, we get images of the Spirit, light or whatever. We, we're aware through Scripture that God has a face. He's a person. And we, we, our life is spent in hope of experiencing the beatific vision, to see God face to face, knowing that that will be an overwhelming moment, that the joy will be like nothing on this earth. And um, where's it going? Um, when Christ presents himself, when he comes, he says, if you knew the Father, you'd know me. If you knew me, you'd know the Father. We get a glimpse of the image of the Father. Christ is showing us something. It seems to me what he's showing is his great justice and his great mercy. But his mercy is divine. It's without bounds. But the interesting thing is with both Christ and the Father, we see a face. Yeah? With the Holy Spirit, we know that he is on that side of the earth and on that side of the earth. He's here and there. He's infinite. He can do that. We tend, we tend to reduce things to concepts that fit us. So we always want to bound them, right? With God, we're dealing with something boundless. With Christ, that changes, but we still see an infinite love in him and what he did. The Spirit's different. We don't see him. We know him by effects. So we can put a sequence together. Well, sometimes, I mean... We know through a miracle that the Spirit had to have been present. We believe that. But to know that he's there requires that we put together a, a sequence of events and so that we can say, um, this sequence doesn't explain itself by itself. Something else is happening here. And we can make a deduction, an inference, right? Is everybody following? We know the sequence by, I mean, we know the, um, the, the Holy Spirit by effects very often. So here's my question. It goes to the question that we ended with, is Christ present? And most everybody said he was. Um, if you look at human beings in Top Gun 2, can you identify events, moments, when a human being made a choice that involved the human order of causalities? If he does this, this happens. So the um, cyclone comes to Maverick and says on the beach, what the hell are you doing? You've got this job to do. He's going X, 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 X. If you're going to do this, you cannot be on a beach playing. Right? That's his thinking. And, Matt, and Matt, he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a team. And, and I think Cyclone says where? And he goes, you know, there it is. We're watching a human being make choices that have consequences that we can identify in the human order. Is everybody following? So Maverick does something, and, and when he drops Penny, I love that. When he drops Penny off the first time, she walks down the aisle and she, or the, the sidewalk to her door, and she says, "Don't give me that look." You know, she, and when she goes to the door behind and closes the door and almost collapses, that's an expression of the cost of what she just did by refusing him or, or not making an invitation to him. Is everybody following? Those belong to a human order. We're seeing a choice, an action, a consequence, right? The, so in Scholastic, in St. Thomas theology, 
you'd call that an order of secondary causes. It's our world, full of secondary causes. We do things. There's a freedom in our world to do things, okay? The order of first causes is the order of God in his kingdom. The origins of all things are there, right? So, first, that's an order of first causes. God is the first cause of everything, right? But he's given us a freedom here because he's made us in his image so we can make choices ourselves, like him. We can make choices, we can do things. But there's two different orders of causes. One is secondary, one's first. Now the question that I'm asking here is, in this movie we've got human beings making choices all the time. We can't go to a character and not talk about the choice and what he did. And What I'm asking here is, can we find the Holy Spirit in his own order of causalities um, intervening at work in the human order? If so, where? And I know that's a tough question. You need to be in philosophy or ontology or theology or something. Come on, I want some heads. Go. It's head. It's close. Wait, wait, wait. My mind is going. Heather, wait. My wife's not even going to help me. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm lost. It, hip. It is, I know, but go ahead. Uh, no, your name. Heather. I said Heather. <laughs> I had it. Don't confuse me. It's hard, it's hard enough being in my head without you doing things like that. I thought I was being good because I remembered. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Come on, Heather. I'm so, by the way, I'm so glad you're here. And I loved your bread. Good for you. Um, yeah. Bunker, with the first strike they have, the laser pointer. They have a Good for you. You're right on. One is just dead eye. They're just eyeballing it. And with given how small the point is, and they each time they're like, "That's miracle number one. That's miracle number two. Right. That's just a very third miracle was the graveyard or whatever they called yeah, it. The, the yeah. Corner, yeah. Uh, but the fact that with that second one. No help, no right. Just purely right. You're the one I'm right. And you're trusting your instincts. Right. You're trusting right. Your um, just your accuracy to hit that and properly hit the target and then get up out of there and get home. Uh, so the fact that they call it miracles that always stuck out to me. Yeah. Because they're they're not denying that this is impossible. Like just from a human perspective, this should not be able to happen. And the fact that it does yeah. something otherworldly about that. Meredith. Um, if you don't bring her next time, I'm going to have hard words for you. <laughs> right on. Here, let me just elaborate on, on anybody else with any other examples, but let me pick that up. To You're all aware of what she's talking about, and it's a perfect example, because even the men talk about those accomplishments in terms of miracles. That's miracle, remember, number one, getting the thing there. Miracle two was setting the bomb when the, when the radar put a path for the bomb. And Coffin Corner was the third one, getting over the mountain. You remember when the, when the actual mission took place, the first one works, but the, but the, um, whatever that, the path that that machine makes, you know, the radar that guides the, the missiles, didn't function. 
So it, it would have been hard to do anyway unless the first miracle took place. But it didn't work. So what the pilot does, who, was that Maverick? Who's, wasn't he flying the... Whoever's in the plane at that point isn't, isn't depending on the precision of technology. And everybody already knew tech, tech, to do it anyway with technology would be a miracle. To do it without technology, how do you account for that degree of precision? I mean, you can pass it off and say skill or luck. or. But it's interesting to think in, in terms of the question that I'm framing, in terms of a secondary order of causalities or a first. Um, things like that that make you wonder, is the spirit involved or not? Do we have evidence? No, because in the modern world it'd be, it would be put in terms of probability. It would, be put, it would be put in mathematical terms of probability. So it doesn't fit in probability, it was just an accident or lucky or, you know. Or, there's something else going on here. The thing that I want to ask you to think about is that the spirit has his own order of causalities. He enters our world and he's, he's he, this is amazing, he's bound by this world. He helped create it. He's bound by it. Miracles don't take grotesque forms that we don't recognize. They always take some form that's accommodating our human nature, even though they're strange. But it's not in some alien form that we wouldn't understand or we would never see them. We'd never see them as miracles. But one of the difficulties we face is, and that's why the church is so cautious about this, because lots of people claim miracles all the time when they're not. But there are a number of things going on in that story um, that should leave us questioning. And I think Heather was, I mean, she just went right directly to the, you know, one, one of the most obvious. Any other questions or any other suggestions about the spirit at work anywhere? I think as it worked between Penny and uh, Mav, the love that they come to has to overcome a lot. Um, um, let me ask, um, let, me, let me put it this way. One of the amazing things that we see at the end is that group could not be more divided in the beginning because they're all in their own egos. Hangman, he said, who's gonna follow me? <laughs> I love that guy, I love him. He's, he's gonna be humbled. You know, when he's not chosen, that's a humiliating moment. When he come, who comes to save Maverick and Rooster? Hangman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's your savior here. Straighten up your yeah. Straighten up your seat. Put up your tra your your tray tables. Or, you know that that wonderful set. And one of one of my arguments is this is not pagan because pagans don't have a sense of humor like that. All the humor in this story is an expression of faith, hope, charity. It's not a pagan, sober, sullen, you know. There's a wonderful humor running through this whole movie. And humility. Yes, 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 yes. Is that not trained into them during all their years of training? Say again. Is that humility and that humor kind of trained into them? Did you see any humility? Not in, in the beginning. Right, was it your husband? I think it's, here, it took, I think they're taught the opposite of, of well, here, let me just, because I want to, I think what we're seeing is what can happen with a good teacher, because he, ha he helps those young people come to that, because in the beginning they couldn't be more divided. And remember what happens when Cyclone wants to take the team over? 
And he comes to the group and he says, we're going to do this, but I'm extending the time and we're lifting the elevation. They all look at each other in contempt because they know the likelihood of their getting home is less now. Maverick is doing a miracle? Is this the order of causalities? Because he says early on to get them home, sir, which is one of the things Cyclone didn't say. I think, I think one of the reasons uh, Maverick gets tearful at the end is because he is so humbled by the fact that he got them home and he couldn't have done it without Rooster because Rooster brought him home. So what we see at the end is individuals who, who come together in a spirit of humility, not close, because of everything that happened with his teaching. Um, so I think one of the, well, I would have asked it, but I'm not going to ask it now. It seems to one of, the, one of the things we can say about the movie, everybody, everybody at that end the end movie is better. Is that just technical, psychological? Or is there something of the spirit at work? Would anybody make that claim in our world today? <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> You've got a strange person up here making all these. So there's lots of things going on that go to the spirit, as I'm describing it, and they're the sorts of things nobody, nobody, no modern critic would go there at all. But I think it's why we feel a joy at the end, and I think it's why we get close to tears with Maverick, because that's not the same Maverick that ends Top Gun 1. When he looks up at Cyclone, even Cyclone, in fact, I'm going to go to him as a question, even Cyclone is humbled because Maverick pulled off what he, and, well, I'm going to go to that now. Anyway, the point that I want to make here is everybody is made better. How can that be? And if you watch the skirmishes, you know, after they pass um, Coffin Corner, there is fire everywhere. And everybody in that team is, look out, so look out. They're talking to each other. They're helping each other. They're, they're quickly responsive to each other. They're past their own egos. They're not living in their own egos anymore. They're doing things they would, have, they would have never done or even dreamt of doing. Remember when the movie begins, he puts that book in the trash can and everybody looks at him. So these are changed people. Everybody's changed. Let me go to one more question because I want to be careful over time here. Um, Iceman dies. And you know that um, Cyclone comes in and says, you're dismissed. You're permanently grounded. You're done. He's that angry. He says, I'm taking over. And then he goes to the class and tells them the parameters have changed. Remember, the ceiling's going to be raised and the time is going to be extended. <laughs> because remember, Mav said, when the, when the cyclone was saying, these are the things you've got to do. And Maverick added, and bring them home, sir. That was crucial to him. Um, and two of them risk their lives with each other. I mean, Maverick saves Rooster's life at the very end by coming in. And interesting, Rooster disobeys. Cyclone says, get them back. And he says, where's Maverick? And it cuts. I love the editing there. It cuts. We don't know what's going on. Next thing we see is Mav's on the ground in the snow. And then two minutes later, a, you know, this helicopter gets shot down and a plane gets, flies by and it's shot down. And Maverick runs to see I think he, if he knows that it's Rooster, I'm not sure, but... But all these things that men are doing take them way past themselves. So the maverick that looks up at Cyclone at the end is nearly in tears because I think he's overwhelmed with gratitude. You know, that they could have pulled this off 
you can say it's a miracle. I mean, nobody's going to see it that way. But I think most of us, when we feel it, you know, the, the joy that I think most of us feel, even if we don't, identif don't put that word on it, I think the reason we, go, we have those depths of feeling that we do is because, because something extraordinary has just happened. So here's a question that's on a sort of practical level. Cyclone says to him, you're done. I'm taking over. And then remember when he gives the briefing and he's telling all the cadets, Maverick's gone and this is what you're going to do. You know, the ceiling's raised and more time and they're looking at each other doubtfully. And then they hear something behind him. Cyclone turns around and he sees on the monitor the image of that plane going through and he says, who's that? <laughs> As if it could be anybody else. And immediately the team knows knows who it is and they say it's Maverick and then they all and then gradually as he moves through they stand up because they're in awe of what they're watching he's doing exactly what Cyclone said couldn't so he had to once again prove that people can do more than they think they can if they're asked to do it and they're helped to do it in the right way um, so here's my question Maverick gets called on the carpet again after he does that and Cyclone says um, I could have you permanently discharged, dishonorable discharge um, or I could put my career at risk by naming you and it's at that point that Maverick learns he's gonna lead the mission and he's shocked because he's you know he just disobeyed um, the cyclone has been concerned about his reputation, his own reputation all along, and he even says explicitly, or I could risk my reputation and let you be the... And next thing we know, Mav takes over and... Well, here's my question. Iceman died. Cyclone has been an SOB through the whole movie. He's just a SOB. He's just a... I, I, I want to be careful. When I watch a movie like this, when people hate people like that, there's always something in me reserving judgment because I'm too old not to because that guy is doing what he thinks is the best thing to do so I'm like he's committing a wrong I can't do that so my judgments tend to suspend on people like that and I'm saying I'm saying that quite honestly just as because I think it's important for us to realize we're, we're so ready to condemn people to criticize that very often people are doing the best they can in whatever they've got so by somebody else's standard, they may be failing, but still, it's not like somebody's trying to be evil. He was not trying to do bad things. He was doing what he should have done. And Maverick, here it is, Maverick takes him to that threshold. Remember, that was one of the themes that I pressed last night, this, that is constantly going to threshold. Maverick forces him to go there. What does he do? This guy just showed it can be done. He'll, he'll be a laughing stock if he gets rid of him because Maverick showed it could be done. And yet to let him be leader is going to put his career at risk. <coughs> Sorry. Is everybody following? There's almost nothing else he can do. And what he does is why? Why? So here's my question. Iceman's dead. He's dead. Um, Cyclone's been an SOB the whole time. Although he's doing what, a, what an admiral should do. Are we to see that through the changes that he's undergone, that he's closer to Iceman, that he, he will look at people differently now because of the changes that he's undergone? 
I mean, I, that's a that's a purely spec. I mean, we can't answer it because the movie doesn't. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does, because he sees now everything he doubted before. He sees. It's a little bit like seeing Christ. I mean, it's been done. He didn't believe. He didn't believe it could be done. He was all over him. What do you, you know on the on the beach? <laughs> what in the hell are you doing here? You know, get this team ready. So he didn't believe him at all until Maverick ran that course. But even if he didn't believe, at the end, he's seen. All doubts have been taken away. And it leaves me wondering. Everybody's better. Everybody in that is better. It's an amazing story. And it leaves me wondering. I think he's going to be a better commander. Um, everybody in that movie is better. They see more, their hearts are better, they're, more, they're humbler. Um, oops. Anybody else? Or I want to be careful here, but... I'm, I'm going to stop because, it, I mean, there's lots we can do. Um, any, the, the, only, the only other concerns that I would offer you again, just by way of review, um, think about the number of scenes that have humor running through them that are comic. Can you name some just quickly? Let's do this quickly. Humor in the movie. Or, or put it this way, is there as much humor in Maverick 1 as there is in 2? I think there's more in 1, but I think in 2 it was great, the opening where he said, and you're still a captain. And he knows it's one of the mysteries. Yeah. Right. Everybody a decorated captain. Rooster, yeah. That was reminiscent of when Mav went to lead in Top Gun 1, the one guy back to the ship who had lost it. Right. What was his name? Cougar was in... He brought Cougar back. Right. And he said, you get back here now. And he's like, Mav, I don't feel for this. And he went and brought him, yeah. him back. Yeah. That was reminiscent. So like you said, it was always building on it. But I thought that that was one point of humor yeah. in the beginning. Hard for me to see... But, but I, I would say, not a doubt in my mind anyway, that the, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here too, that there's much more humor in the second, far more. There's far more humor in the second. And let me just say this by way of trying to flush that out a little bit. But you know that my own claim, the first movie is driven by passion. The governing spirit of the first is, pa it's romantic passion. And by romantic, you know that I'm saying it always involves the ego in ways we don't see. Romantic love is natural for us. It's, but to stay in romantic love, <laughs> not good. 
What drives that first movie is passion. You're not going to find much humor in a world of passion. Humor comes in when your mind begins to see ironies or make distinctions. Penny is full of ironies. I mean, she, you know, in the beginning of the bar when they're out of the ship and, and she says something about, I thought you were in the Navy. <laughs> you know, she's, she's ready to have humor. Maverick's not. Maverick's not. But humor belongs to a world that involves the intellect in a more principled way. When you're in your passions, you're not as likely to see the humor of things. So, and I'm, I'm going to claim that that's one of the indications for me that the spirit of that is beyond just what's human. It's showing the very best of human beings. Something's going on there. So if you look, anybody quick, quick, quick I, I want to do this. Name some scenes where there was humor. Just quick. Let's do this quickly. Which? Oh, right. When he jumps out the window. <laughs> Wonderful scene. Earth. Hmm? Yeah, flesh that out. Does everybody know what Doc's talking about? When that little boy says, when Fabric says, where am I? And the little boy says, Wait, just to underscore that. Just to underscore that. So this is, this is part of the beauty of this movie. Because humor usually involves um, irony, discrepancies between one thing and another. So Mav has just gone on this torturous task. He's disobeyed. He's put this million-dollar project at risk. He's had to fly this thing faster than anybody ever has, and it's taken crazy. In fact, he even blows. He can't resist. That's the old Maverick coming out. He pushes it, what was it, to Mach 4 or whatever it was. The plane's destroyed. So we've just gone through five minutes of absolute suspense. Is he going to make it? Will he die? When it crashes, is he going to, you know, that's the sort of suspense building up. The next scene we see this, these legs walking in this probably Nevada town and he walks in this cafe bar and everybody looks at him like he's a Martian. That in itself is comic and then there's that long pause when Mavic wants to drink and he the woman's about ready to serve and he you know they're all spellbound because he I think they think they're in the presence of a Martian it's just this it's an alien and then he says where am I and the boy looks at him and wonder and says earth. <laughs> Funny I'm not going to go. I mean, we could go and the, see, the humor between Rooster and um, Maverick at the end. You know, when Maverick, who is terrified, he's thinking it's Rooster, and he's running towards him to see if he's okay, and he hits him and knocks him in anger. And, and Rooster's going, what are you doing? You know, he should be grateful. That's a moment of, of pride being humbled again, I think on both parts. There's a moment when they don't know what to say to each other. It's just a funny scene. Yeah, what were you thinking? <laughs> you told me that. To think. Yes. 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 Well, I, I saved your life. No, <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> There's no pride in that. Um, and then the, one of the other comic scenes just following that up is remember when they're on the brow of that hill and looking at the Russian airfield? And Rooster says, I don't know what he says, what to do. and Because he, he looks at it and thinks there's nothing to do. And when Mab finds that he's, there's nothing to do, the first thing you know that he's going to do is do. So he stands up and Rooster looks at him in disbelief. I mean, it's just, there's comedy running through this whole thing. Comedy, the divine comedy. You know, the infer I've told you this, the inferno is not tragic. Even though modern, it's not... It, the Inferno shows how stupid. It's not tragic. They knew exactly what they were doing. It's a choice. The Inferno's not tragic. 
Dante's work is called a divine comedy. Why? Why? Beatrice gave us the answer. If we believe in, that God is good and we are made in his image, Boethius' conclusion, there's nothing, there's no bad fortune. That's the basis of comedy. No matter what goes on, no matter how, how tragic it appears, we know that's our faith, our hope, our love. Whenever we have a reason for not hoping or not having faith or not loving, it's exactly then <laughs> we're called because we believe there's something else going on. So the comedy that runs through this, I think, is an indication of something more. It's a different spirit, completely different from Mav one is, or I mean, uh, Top Gun one is passion, just unmediated, unrelieved passion. This movie is full of intelligence, choices, ironies. So you could line up the comic scenes. I'm, I'm going to stop here. You could line up um, threshold anger scenes. We talked about some of those. You know, particularly the one between Hangman and Rooster in that briefing. You know, when, when Hangman said, we know there's something going on in your past. And the two, be they're ready to fight each other. And then the scene when Rooster confronts Maverick and says, why did you pull my papers? And I've argued that both of those are essential. That stuff has to come out. It, um, you have to deal with painful realities or they stay buried and they, they fester. Everything about this movie is taking thing towards, towards a threshold in a, in a spirit of hope and faith and love. Comedy. Um, Say that again. For the time. At the time that that movie was made and put out. You're talking about Maverick 2? Yes. Yeah. We needed a movie like that. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. That was just a great yeah, movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I've been saying all along is that the poet is a spokesman for his age. Yes. The really, the really good poets are spokesmen in the sense that they bring eyes to what they do that most people don't have so they help us to see something that's important to see even if it's painful and the really good movies deal with that in hope in faith in love and i think this does for sure okay that's let me stop any last closing comments on on maverick the movie wonderful movie. I'm glad we could do it. We've seen some good movies today. I'm really, I'm really joyful of, you know, Dog. Who's going to give any attention to those movies? We saw The Judge, which I think is a What's special... What's the next one? I don't know. Henry the Eighth? Henry the, the Fifth. Henry. I don't know. I'm, I'm seriously thinking about that because yeah, of the poem. I've got to find something that's like these other movies that nobody's going to go to, but I don't know what it is. Um, but anyway, let's, come on, let's do Jane Austen. Anybody want to take a quick one minute break to get, I don't, what Connie, what did, Connie brought something. Anybody want some wine or? Follow Karen or Heather, follow her. You're in, you're, good, you're in good hands.
Put your ear over here. Yes, yeah, there's Mother Meredith. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Doc, sorry. I'm sorry. Are you are you all set, Doc, for food? Yeah. Is everybody is everybody signed up for food? I'm not. I just keep bringing wine because I've always missed a Is everybody? Is everybody here signed up for food? You're signed up, but you're signed up because we're gonna do we're gonna take the week off, two weeks off of Thanksgiving off and the week after. I can definitely bring food. Do we get you guys down? Karen and Mary, cut. We have, we, have, we have to start again. We have to have a Christmas party. Do we? Right? Oh, I have to stay. When we have parties, I, I have to fast for three days. God. Heather, 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 be careful of the company you keep in this room. Be careful of the company you keep. Lexi, Lexi, this is good. It's really good. Start the food list over, and I think we'll check when we're done here. Because of the two weeks off, she's going to redo it, and then okay. we'll sign up when we're done, so we don't lose time. tonight. Yeah. Okay. So we don't lose time, right? Good idea. Come on, let's start. Can you guys, Heather, can you hear me okay back there? Come on, you guys, let's start. Mary, would you behave? Mary, would you? Heather, be careful of the company you keep here. God. Mary, any, anybody with the first name Mary in this room? Mary! 
Well, let's let's start. Let's start. Um, Jane Austen, boy, from a male world to a feminine world. I've got a couple of sort of large perspective reflections that I want to offer you guys that I think are are worth thinking about. I think I said this before in the coming weeks just to prepare for this, but I want to say it again because its importance has just staggered me the more I think about it. The claim that I made a couple of weeks ago, you know, is this, that with, and I'm, I'm, so this is, you know, I wouldn't say this lightly, and maybe I'll, you know, get dumped on for this, I'm not sure, but that the tradition, the, the importance given to love and marriage, that tradition comes to an end with Jane Austen. That's how bleak I'm going to make this. Now give me a minute on this, okay, before you push back. Um, um, love and marriage, as we know it, comes to an end. Um, it doesn't mean people aren't going to love or marriage isn't going to be a part of a novel. If you read some of Faulkner's novels, marriages take place in them. But that's not what I'm saying. Um, if you, if you, if you, you cannot read Dante and not learn the difference between romantic love, the sirens, and mature love. Remember the sirens take hold of Dante in purgatory? And when he um, gets to the top of purgatory, um, Beatrice is going to ream him out. She's, 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 she's going to shame him so completely that he's going <laughs> to pass out again. He's, he's our new epic hero. He's not Achilles with a shield or Odysseus or Aeneas. He, he passes out a number of times in that book. So the Christian hero is a different kind of hero. It doesn't mean he can't be brave, but it does mean that there's something good besides military strength, if I can put it that way. But love is absolutely central to that tradition, from the, from the Odyssey all the way up. So if you look at Dante, love is absolutely at the center of his work. That's what that work is about. It's, a, it's an affirmation of love. Dante has learned to love better from the trip that he took with Virgil, who's his pagan guide, and then Beatrice. And she takes him, here we are again, to the first cause. We move from a world of secondary causes, when the, when the Pope begins, into a world of first causes. We move into God's kingdom, and we see eternal things. That's one of the amazing things that Dante does. If you read Shakespeare, Shakespeare's, um, lots of his plays deal um, directly with love and marriage. And tragedy of them. Othello is probably, in my, certainly in my mind anyway, is one of the finest tragedies ever written about marital love. Othello is going to kill his wife. His love is so great. In fact, that's partly the cause of it. His love is so great, he can't dissociate himself. And when Iago goes to work on him, you're watching evil, you're watching evil go to work on love. And you know from my argument, I'm saying, I'm saying, Shakespeare's showing there's something inherent in the commercial regime that accounts for that. Because when we read Othello, remember we did Othello and Merchant of Venice together. Because I said, Othello is the tragic treatment of the, that is us, we're the commercial regime. Remember, the commercial regime begins with Dante, the Commedia is a critique of it. That's the modern world and its threshold and coming forward in our time. 
Othello is a treatment of the tragic nature of love, romantic love, marital love. And Merchant of Venice is its comic affirmation. What, what poor, and it's, think about that. The dominant, just, you've been hearing me say this for years now. Men are scoundrels. I, I, I probably overplay that some. Yeah, yeah, particularly because so many of you women are all shaking your head yes in agreement. Um, um, Othello's a man. He kills his wife. Portia, a woman, brings this wisdom to the commercial regime that none of the men has. Okay? She comes from Belmont. We've talked about that. The, the commercial regime is incapable of producing a lawyer who could have figured out that case because they're products of the commercial regime. Watch lawyers work today in our world. They don't have that kind of wisdom. They don't have that philosophic background, and they don't have the love of poetry. You can say Portia's an image of the poet. She resolves. She brings things together with her mind. Her lines about mercy, that... Um, uh, that famous speech of hers and mercy is one it's an incredible you know long lyric um, so Shakespeare treats marriages in his tragic works Macbeth and his wife um, um, Macbeth's wife is a witch she's just genuinely a witch so we can look at a number of plays it's fair to say Every one of his comedies, except one, and it's one that I would like to give you guys, particularly because it's, it's about Petruccio training, training his wife. You know, it's, that's what, the moderns are going to misread it. What he, what he does is nothing short of amazing, but that's the only comedy in which the central figure is a man, Taming of the Shrew. And Petruccio's an extraordinary man in lots of ways. What he, what he helps Kate to become as his wife is a man. Feminists are going to explain that away. The Kate at the end of that play is an extraordinary woman. She's just an extraordinary woman. Um, another one that you know that, that I've presented that we've read together is a, is Shakespeare's changing the genres. Winter, Winter's Tale. The first half of Winter's Tale is the Othello story. It's a man. It's a husband becoming jealous of his wife to a point of almost killing her. And then the second half is a comic turn, a shift, that brings everything right. We can say that in one sense, Hermione dies because of what he does. His son dies. Antigonus, um, um, Port or, uh, Paulina's husband, dies because of the king. So what the king does is stupid. I mean, it's all this male power. And I hope everybody's seen that when women step into that power, once they that you're seeing the same kind of problem. But it's a man causing all these problems, and Portia, I mean, um, Paulina, and Hermione resolving it. And the power with which they do that um, is faith and hope and love. Because pa Pauline, Paulina does everything she does on the basis of that... Um, prophecy that was given, you know, that one day something could happen. So she is the opposite image of this male wanting power, or anybody wanting power. She's trusting on the gods to help bring this about. That's her extraordinary faith. And so on the basis of that, she says to Leontes, do not marry. 
do not marry. And then 16 years pass by, and you know the story, we've done it, and um, um, Leontes and Hermione are reconciled in that tearful scene at the end. You know, the husband sees, it's like um, Maverick, except much, much deeper. The husband looks on his wife that he thought he'd killed after a 16 years penance. He's tearful. She looks on him tearfully. It's the most extraordinary resolution, reconciliation that I'm aware of in all of literature. But it's a marriage. And it's a tragic comic play. If you look at all the comedies, they're all about women. The central figure in every one of them, except Taming of the Shrew, is a woman. Is a woman. So in Shakespeare's mind, the, the consummation of human love is, is shown in marriage. Up until, through the Catholic Middle Ages, up until the Renaissance, a man and a woman were meant to love and consummate that love in marriage because in that marriage they would become one. That was the ideal. You know, the, the talk that we had the other night on, uh, on Chris West's talk on Catholicism, that, that at the center of the Catholic faith is marriage. So the claim that I'm making here is that if you read Jane Austen, and we're going to do her now, it's amazing because every work she writes, every maid, she, every single, no matter what the circumstances or the setting, whatever the plot is, every one of them is, is about love, number one, and the fulfillment of that love in marriage. After Austen, it stops. George Eliot won't get close to what Austen does. We're, with George Eliot, we're into the modern world. Post, we're into a post-Christian world. Austen's on the edge of it. She's looking back to a world that's fading. Mansfield Park gives a greater sense of that fading, that world is being lost. But for her, the major concern for every one of her novels is love. Not, the, the, not this is, she's not a feminist, not a woman depending on a man. That's not what this novel's about, or any of her novels. It's about love, whatever the circumstances are, that will lead to a marriage. And, and it's clear if you've read enough of you know, nobody, nobody can get to that marriage completely without undergoing a conversion, a change of heart, getting past problems so that they're prepared to get married. So that's just one thought I'd like you to keep in mind. And to sort of put a, you know, a stamp on it, um, think about novel, Henry James, you can go where you want, Conrad, Faulkner, go where you want. Um, you won't find another writer preoccupied with love the way she is. And the interesting thing for me is if you look at the modern world, I mean, I, for example, so in the modern world, particularly in America, because America since the Protestant Reformation has been the leading country in the world. The, 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 the governing principle of the American polity, I'll say that again, the governing principle of the American polity is the private will, not marriage. If a woman wants to have an abortion, she can. If a child wants to have a sex chain, he or she can. So we've entered a very different world. And I, I, I want to put that as starkly as I can because we so take it for granted and we're missing something. When I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're all feeling this even if you haven't articulated. When we enter Jane Austen's world, we're in a world full of people visiting people, family everywhere. You can't read Pride and Prejudice five pages without one family coming to visit another. Sisters talking with women, talking with women. Sometimes men talk, but... One family engaging another, balls, dinners. 
I mean, what you see are, are at the heart of her, her, her stories are families visiting. Families. So in, for anybody to say this is the theme of Jane Austen and not acknowledge that is not reading Jane Austen. They're seeing through modern eyes. Because the principle of the modern world is the elevation of the private self. The individual autonomous, the individual isolated autonomous person. Individual autonomous isolated. That's the modern world. So if you're a, a critic, Starting from that perspective, you're not going to see any of that stuff. You're going to say it's about dependence. It's not about dependence. It's only about dependence if you start with the belief that every individual is isolated and it puts women in a particular spot because to get out of that isolation, she has to marry. That is not the way Jane Austen looks at the world. So I want you to think about the importance of what's happening here. We weren't going to do this. Um, because in one sense, we, we're seeing John Donne, all of his poems. You're not going to find poems like that in our modern world. So what's, what we're seeing in, a, in an amazing way is one of the most amazing writers ever to write showing the nature of love. And in her vision, the nature of love is to bring two people together so that they can become one. Okay. Now, put that against a, a, a series like Friends, which I think was one of the longest-running series, you know, eight or what. Friends, forever. Marriage? Not. Sex in the City? Not. Go where you want. If you put Jane Austen next to the modern world, it's going to tell you something about the modern world and changes that have taken place. Um, now here's one of the interesting things that she does that's extraordinary. So my claim is the central concern for Jane Austen is love. Absolutely. People can say she writes these fairy tales. They're not fairy tales in her mind because she believes love is possible. That man was meant to love and be loved. That's just in her nature. And she got that from Shakespeare. She is as brilliant as she is because she learned so much of what she does from him. The difference is that if you watch her, we're, we're getting a feminine view, not feminist, feminine. And I just want to make that clear. She, she is not a proto-feminist, the way lots of modern women want to make her. She's not. She's not a proto-feminist. She's very feminine. But the interesting thing is she gives us what Shakespeare gives us, except it's from the point of view. And women, if you know anything about novels, you know, women start to enter the writing world. Because so many of the writers in the 19th century are women. And what are their topics? domestic life. Shakespeare will never spend that kind of time in domestic life. Austin does. Brontes do. Georgella in some way. but So what we're seeing in Austin is the central importance of a marriage for a community and the way it engages people. Now here's another principle that I'd like to leave you with. One of the interesting things about her presentation of character is she, she makes clear that love is her focus. Jane, Charlotte, Lydia, you know, wherever you're going to go. She's realistic enough to know that um, there are problems with marriage because some people marry for wealth, for status. We're in a class world, so Jane Austen is aware that some women... Um, and Wickham, a man, marry for money 
or, or comfort or security. But she's realistic enough to know that not everybody can have the same kind of marriage because people are different. One of the beauties and one of the marks of her realism is that she puts characters together who have a, a large grade, a large range of talents and abilities, and they all marry according, to, if that's a good marriage, they'll marry according to those talents, those grades. So for instance, Charlotte is glad to settle for Collins when most of us don't like him. He, he, he married, he, or proposes to Elizabeth. Let me ask you, would that be a good marriage? No. Why not? Give reason, just quick, obvious reason. She's, yeah, she is. And he's too pompous. I mean, he's just an idiot. He's, and he's a, he, he, he's a minister. Um, it would be a lot like her own parents' marriage. Her what? Her own parents' marriage. Yeah, I want to get that. That's a little bit subtle, yeah, but she's really... About, that would be about yeah, the same. We're going to go there. She yeah. would be her father. Collins would be his mother. Is everybody following? They used to the, say back then that a woman could learn to love the husband, but in order to do that, you would have to respect him first. Well, you learn, I'm going to turn that on, or you learn to come to respect somebody because you love them. I don't want to get into this right here. What I want to do is make Jane Austen. What's interesting about her, she never moralizes and she never judges. She doesn't judge. She puts characters out there, and she's so clear about them and what they see, is we see their positions, and we learn something about love from them. So Charlotte, for example, will say, love's a matter of chance. You, you, that's her philosophy, love's a matter of chance. She's not going to miss it. When Colin proposes to her, she goes. So in Jane Austen's world, Jane Austen is not a romantic. I've got to underline, she is not a romantic. She's an absolute realist. In her mind, that's a good marriage. For us to criticize that is not to see what's going on. And that's true of everybody. The beauty about what Jane Austen does is she shows us this um, hierarchy of loves. Each, each giving what they're, the gifts that they bring to it, you know, and some equality between the couple, something that will make them one. The wonderful thing about Elizabeth and Darcy is that they're, they, they show the best that can be in the sense that they're more gifted than anybody else in the book. Now, I need to say that again. That's the center of her attention in the book. Wouldn't you agree? All the other relationships are important. She spends time on them. But they're always to throw a light on the nature of love and marriage. The central concern in Pride and Prejudice is Elizabeth and Darcy, and both of them are extremely gifted, and both of them are very proud. So what she's showing us, if they're going to come together well, if they're going to love, they've got to learn to put that pride away, and that's what happens. So we're in that Top Gun movie that, that one of the questions we have to ask is, who's improved over the story? Collins, Charlotte, Lydia, Wickham, the Bennets. Crucial questions. Um, the Bennets are because they're the marriage in which the story opens. But I'd say that, I mean, one of the, and she does this in novel after novel, so this is not peculiar. She's aware of grades of marriages based on abilities because not all people have the same abilities. 
And, and by the way, I think a lot of moderns would disagree with that, and, and, and I, would, I would say there's a ground for that. Because I think marriages can exist with discrepancies if the people love each other. But in Jane Austen's world, she makes that sort of equality a condition. I want to say, in terms of our church, the church would say, any, you can, a very intelligent man can marry a woman who's not quite as intelligent, and it could be a really happy marriage if they love each other. But in Austin's world, we're seeing a hierarchy, and it's clear it's important to see that. So one of the things she's doing in all of her scenes is showing all these people meeting these families because they're revealing something about their marriage life, the way they look at love, and they offer a, a, a basis for comparing marriages with each other. At the center of her world are these two very gifted Elizabeth is so bright. I'm going to read some. I, I'm just, the, the wit that she has is to me amazing. And the same with Darcy, except, I, I mean, she's, she's got a, a really fine wit. So, the conclusion that I want to draw from that, just in terms of, you know, giving us a direction here, is this book is a wonderful affirmation of everything feminine. Not feminist, feminine. She shows us women who go bad, who go wrong, Lydia. Mary will probably do okay, you know, Kitty. But, um, but Lydia is clearly a, an embarrassment. Um, but Jane is a wonderful woman. She's not as critical. She doesn't have the sharp mind that Elizabeth does, but she makes a good marriage with Bingley. And um, part of the drama of this story comes from um, what happens between Elizabeth and Darcy because they are both so gifted. They stand out. She knows that. So the suspense, part of the suspense of the novel is, will they come together? What will they have to overcome in order to do that? That's the plot. Okay. Um, so um, the great themes are love and marriage as the fulfillment. It's bringing love under law, but it's clear in Austin's mind, before young couples can marry, they really have to learn to see themselves as they are. And I really think come to a humility that makes it possible for them to love. That's why the, that's why the novels all end with marriages, because now they're ready. Um, um, the, some of the influences of marriage we've seen are class, neighbors, family. Those are all influences. I want everybody to be attent attentive to this. Those of you who will go on to read Mansfield Park will see this. Listen to this, because I, I don't know that I'll come back to it. Mansfield Park is about places. Her theme is always love. Always. And marriage. But Ma listen to the title. It's Mansfield Park. If you ever pick up Mansfield Park, you're going you're gonna to discover, if you're reading well, that there are different locations and they're important for Jane Austen because those locations make a difference in the people who are raised in them. They're centers of value. That's true here. Rosings is Lated Berg. She is, she, there's almost no person more snobbish in the movie or in the book than she is. It's the wealthiest place. She's crushed her daughter. And if you look at the effect of her treatment, she's a domineering woman. So Jane Austen shows us the worst of women in her, the worst in Lydia. She's very clear, you know. Where are these people on a scale of love? 
If you look at the settings, and the settings here, I'll just quick, I'm not going to, they're on my, the notes so you can look at. Longbourn is where the Bennets are, Netherfield, the Bingleys, Derbyshire or Pemberley. And we won't see Pemberley until the end, and when we see Pemberley, it's going to take your breath away. Because Elizabeth's going to look at that place and realize this is what I almost lost. Because, I and, here, and, and I want to underline that. Um, the conversation between Charlotte and Elizabeth on this matter is, really goes to the point. Because early on she, pre, she prefigures the scene with Darcy. Because Charlotte and, is saying, Elizabeth or Jane is too cautious. Bingley needs some help to know she, she could love him. And, and Jane's too reticent. And when um, um, Bingley leaves, Darcy thinks it's probably okay because um, Jane wasn't interested. And Elizabeth's going to accuse him of breaking that relationship, and he's going to say, that isn't my motive at all. Um, so people misunderstand each other. Um, they, um, <laughs> preparing for marriage is a really difficult Carolyn Bingley does everything she can to get Darcy to notice her. Jane would never do that. So everything she does is to show these characters, present them to us, so we can see what they show us about the way a character loves or can love, potentially love. Um, but settings are crucial because settings are matrices there where values are formed. So the values at Rosing are going to be different from the values at London and Meriton. Meriton's a, mer it's a mercantile town and it's, it houses a military base. It, it's, <laughs> it says a lot about Lydia and, uh, and Kitty. They go there all the time to flirt with soldiers. And one of the criticisms you're going to see, the father is going to be held really accountable for that. What did he, what did he do to help form his daughters? Um, so settings are crucial. The influence of settings, the influence of parents, absolutely crucial. Jane Austen has very little good, to, or she's very qualified, very guarded about parents. Um, um, Mr. Bennett, I can't stand watching him as a father in the beginning. But we have to wait to see what happens when the novel turns. In Mansfield Park, the father, Sir Thomas, is a stern, stern guy. She's very critical of parents and very critical of fathers um, because of their role in a family. So, these, so there's this inner movement that people are encouraged to love in a certain way, but there are all these external influences, town, setting, parents are major among them. Okay. Um, now very quickly, I want to touch on this and, and we'll come back to it more. The form of her novels are really important. Form of, you know that I've been pressing form from the beginning, but we've, we've not, this is not a literature class, so I don't take a lot of time with it. But form and theme always go together. Um, I, I made the point when we watched Top Gun 2 that I loved that scene when Maverick appears in his blues. And I made the point form and theme are perfectly wedded in that scene. Perfectly wedded, because I've been making the claim that the great change in Maverick is from look at me, how great I am, to effacing himself, putting himself away. Stop drawing attention to himself. We don't hear what he says. I think it's fairly clear that he proposes. And we see the picture of the two of them. Nothing said, and I made the point. What's beautiful about that scene is it's silent. 
It's not saying, look at me, look how good my proposal is, or, you know. Um, it's a remarkable contrast to everything going on. So form and theme should always go together. And that's not always true. Bad writers mess up form. I mean, they may have a theme, but screw up in the way they present it. Jane Austen generally tells her stories from a third-person limited point of view. Do you all know what that is? Third-person limited? Third person is what? He, she, it, they. It's not first. I. Remember what we said? Lyrics? I. The lyrics reveal the inner person, traditionally, always. That's why we've been reading the lyric. We always hear that inner voice, whatever it is, that inner vision. Narratives tend to be more objective. He, she, it. The narrator is telling about Jane, Elizabeth, Lydia, you know, Mr. Bennett. It's limited because we tend to see the story from Elizabeth's point of view. She's the focus of the novel. The beauty of that is this, that because it's third person limited, we see as Elizabeth does a lot. So when Darcy makes his proposal, we tend to stand with Elizabeth. We'll look at Darcy and think, what an idiot, how arrogant this man. Um, Collins, same thing. They're both condescending. But there's something Elizabeth doesn't see. When she meets Wickham, he confirms the worst things about Darcy and she believes him even when she shouldn't because she hates him. She's been spurned and she's too proud. So we tend to see three things through her eyes, which means there's a lot we don't see um, that will become clear to us later. So its, it's, it's form is third person limited. Jane Austen uses understatement a lot. She won't say that guy is stupid. She'll say um, he's not acting in his best interest or, you know, she'll understate things like that. And let me say this here. I want your attention because it's too subtle. To understate something generally expresses charity. So the irony is not just an intellectual thing for her. She brings an amazing capacity to love, even though she's got a finely critical mind. Everything about Jane Austen has to do with love. The way she presents her stories is through the eyes of love. She's got an amazing intellect. She'll show us things the way I've been describing. We will see amazing things, but it'll all be in an, uh, with an understated irony. Everybody is satirized. In the book, in everyone, even Elizabeth. But according to their degree and, um, and, and willingness to love, say. And there's something called indirect discourse. I'm just going to mention it. Um, we'll see it. I'll make these things clear as we go on. She uses indirect, indirect, what's called indirect discourse in a way nobody had ever done before, the way she did. Indirect discourse means the narrator's describing something. It's a discourse. But even though the narrator has her own voice, I'm going to call it a she, the narrator has her own voice, she will describe a character using the character's language when the character's not speaking. So we're being allowed into the interior of the character through the narrator without going to that character. It's like a third person is there. Is that indirect discourse? Whatever she's describing will sudden, suddenly be in the same language of the character, but the character's not speaking. It's as if that character has been internalized in the narrator. 
That means that narrator is far more sensitive than anybody else in the story she's talking about. She can feel these things. She's speaking in their voice. It was remarkable. It was a light year advancement in narrative technique for her to do that because it made it possible to present characters dramatically the way she does, like on stage. Darcy says this, Elizabeth says this. You know, we get these exchanges. But in the narrative voice, we get the narrator describing something, but using the language. It's like we've got inside, but that inside is in the narrator because the narrator is the one telling the story. So it, it allows for subtleties, for subtle shades of emotions, for degrees of detachment and degrees of intimacy on the part of the narrator that she can get that involved in a character. So the technique that she uses, what she does with her form, cannot be separated from her treatment of theme. Okay, Those are just sort of general principles to be aware of. Okay. I want to. I want to. I want to. I want to be careful of time right now. I would like. I want to go to the opening <coughs> chapter just to get going. Any questions on what I've just said, Alexi? Yeah. Um, could you give us an example of the indirect discourse? Maybe two different characters so we can. I will. I, I'm. What you're I'm not going to do it tonight, but I will. I'm going to go over each one of these things as we go through it. They'll become clear. I'm just asking you to be aware that she's doing things that nobody's done. And, and at the center, I hope you'll get this, is this wonderful, honest treatment of women. That, that this, this is an affirmation of the best of women, but it also is a realistic treatment of women because it shows what the meanness of the women are character capable of, the awful things that they do. She's an amazing writer. And, and I'm going to say this, I mean, Everything that motivates her is love. So if she's critical of a person, it's not because there's something wrong with her judgment. There's something wrong with that character. She has this amazing capacity to love. Her, her use of ironic understatement. I'll, we'll, I'll pick some as we go through. Let me stop. Okay, I want to go to the first. Just to get just going. Turn to the first chapter, can you? There's just a couple of questions that I have to get us going. You, I'm sure you've already looked at this and thought about it, but. So the narrator begins, this, is, this says something about the narrator. The narrator begins by saying, oops, sorry, never mind. Narrator begins by saying, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now, let's stop for a second. You've all probably read that a dozen times, but it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. What are the ironies of that opening line? Couple questions. What are the ironies? Who, who are the ironies directed at? And what does it tell us about the narrator? It's a question lots of people are not going to ask. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. What's the irony there? In possession of a good fortune. Huh? In possession of a good fortune. What's the irony? Name the irony. Can you describe it? He's not complete. Yeah. Sorry? He's not complete. He's got money, but no wife. 
Oh, thanks, Mike. Sorry. Thank you. God bless. The other day is it's the wife who wants the, <laughs> the marriage and the money. Right. The, wife who wants <laughs> the, the family. Marriage. The family wants a fortune. So who's the irony directed at? Sorry. Society and especially mothers who want to marry their daughters off or fathers, and it's, it reveals that she has a sense of humor. Okay, flesh that out. Heather, go ahead. Can you speak up? And sure. The very fact that this narrator is opening up with the truth universally acknowledged seems to hint that everyone is already aware of this fact. So the fact that the narrator is pointing it out <coughs> tends to the fact that this narrator is being critical of it instead of highlighting it. In a Describe the criticism. Is it, is, it, is it understated? Is it overstated? In a sense, I would say it's overstated a little bit because it says it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in one of life, the must be in one of the life. Who's the, who's the criticism implied in this directed at? I think it's directed more towards just, in general, people's assumptions of, oh, there's a single man in town with good fortune. He must be looking for a wife at this time since he's come to our town. Do you agree with that? Yeah. According to what you just said a minute ago? Directed towards... Um, universal acknowledgement. Yeah. Directed it's, towards, yeah, the fact that... I don't know. Prejudice. Whether it's matchmaking, nosiness, or the desire for your daughter to rise in station. On the part of the woman, the mother, yes. It's directed at women, clearly. I, it's interesting to me because I'd say it's somewhat understated, the way she's done it. It's, it's poking fun. But it's stating something. So if it's universally true, it would be true of most mothers who want to see their daughters married. You know, it must be a truth. She's poking fun at women and particularly mothers and it's going to be realized because you you know that mrs bennett is going to do everything she can to get her daughters married she sends jane over when when jane or jane gets invited to the bingley's she sends her on horse knowing it's going to rain and her daughter gets sick i mean that was all manipulated on our part she's doing everything she can to get her daughters married so here so here if love is the ideal behind jane austen Immediately we're being shown these perversions. I'm, that's too strong. These foibles, if I can put it that way. That there are these foibles in the way that people deal with marriage. And the opening sentence shows it. Um, anybody else on this? I just want to say that men of good fortune. I mean, only, we're only going to look at men of good fortune. Who have the money. Men who right. also want to get right. a wife, but we don't care about them. You know? So it's also, there's the irony too, I think. Yeah, it is. See, that, that's what amazes me about the irony of it. It's so, in my mind, it's sort of said because she doesn't say only men of, she doesn't say we're, we're only, she doesn't say we're only interested in men of money. The way she puts it is subtler than that. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a man in possession of a good fortune must be. It's, it's stated so from the point of view of a woman, it's telling. But I, I'm amazed at how subtle it is. One of the things that I just want to point out about the narrator is whoever this narrator is, is a master at writing. If you watch the balance of her sentences, the sentence structures, sentences are complete declarative sentences and they're always well ordered. You, know, you, could, you could find a line like this in lyric poetry. The balance of it is so good. She dis I'm on the fence about the phrase uh, in want of a wife because it could be taken two different ways. In, in one way, it means that the man is looking for a wife. And kind of the older meaning of that phrase, 
uh, that he is in need of a wife. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, either way, it's the woman's uh, perception. Yeah, because the woman would be saying, of course he needs a wife. Yes. You know, I mean, that's, it's just an amazing sense of irony. She's not harsh, but it's, it's parodying, I mean, it's, it's, but it's so subtle. Here, I want to look at this opening because we've only got a few minutes. After that, however little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering the neighborhood, she, her sentence structure, the balance of her writing, her lines, is just amazing. This truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he's considered as the rightful property of some one or the other of her daughters. That's Mrs. Bennett to a key. Does Mr. Bennett care about, I mean, immediately in the opening chapters about getting his daughters married? I, I want to I get to him, but anyway, let me, so let's go to the exchange. So the opening exchange of the novel is between Mr. Bennett and his wife. My dear, my dear Mr. Bennett, said his lady to him one day, have you heard that Netherfield Park is let at last? Mr. Bennett replied that he had not. Notice how curt that is. Just curt. He did it not. But it is, returned she, for Mrs. Long has just been here and she told me all about it. Mr. Bennett made no answer. Kurt, do you not, do not you want to know who's taken it? Cried his wife impatiently. You want to tell me. I have no objections to hearing it. This, this was invitation enough. The irony of that line. She doesn't say, um, um, she's too talkative. Um, she didn't care about him. She just wants to talk herself. This was invitation enough. Again, it's, it's her understated irony. She could have said that baldly, it, 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 criticizing in two directions, the husband or the wife. But instead, it's, this was invitation. What did these opening lines tell us? We don't have much time, but I, what did these opening lines tell us about Mr. Bennett? He's impatient with his wife. He what? He's, he's impatient talking with his wife. He's pretty patient. He just keeps listening to her. Well, or, or, sorry, he seems patient. He's a very so he just plays it. He tolerates her. <laughs> yeah, if he taught, what does that say about him? He means he thinks he's above. Yeah. He's condescending. He's condescending. He's arrogant. And boy, does she, does she say, in his arrogance, Mr. Bennett said this, or in his condescending, are you following me? She's not doing that. She, shows she, she could have said, I, I'm saying it. He's a, he's a condescending SOB. Excuse my language. He is, I mean, it's just so insulting the way he treats her. See, I didn't see him that way. I saw him as putting up with her because she's ridiculous. Yeah, but as yes. We get to know her, but, we understand more and more why. But, I mean, it's true, but there's an, I think there's an arrogance in, to him. And we're going to see more and more. But in the opening lines, we see it. Um, that's invitation enough. He's, he doesn't, she, I mean, you can say she's chatty, she goes on, she's excessive in her wanting to get married, or, you know, to get her daughter, all women usually want to see their daughters get married. That, that Jane Austen just plays this subtly, but one of the things we see about Mr. Or, yeah, Mr. Bennett is he is very condescending. He is above her. You can say he tolerates her or puts up. And he teases. And he, yeah. Does he do, well, let me put it differently then, does he do that in a spirit of loving his wife, respecting her? No. No. He's just he does not. Himself. Yeah. yeah. And he'll do that with his daughters and play it. But the set, well, just think about it. If this is the influence on the daughters, you've got this very witty man, very witty, intelligent in his head. 
Is he respectful of his wife? Is he careful of her? Um, does he show respect? Even if she has that as a fault, you know, she, does he respect her? So, anyway, let me stop. Um, that's the opening. And it's interesting in the opening, I, if, hold on to what my claim, at the heart of her novels is this concern for love. And in the opening lines, we get a clear in, um, picture of a family of these five girls <laughs> who, who presumably want to be married. And this view of the mother and father. And it's not a, here, here's a, here's an understatement. It's not a very, how's that? It's not a very favorable view of the husband, if I can put it that way. So immediately we're introduced into a family and it will be the beginning of an explosion because we're gonna see family after family entering. And this is the beauty of it. Contrast this to the modern world. When you get a story in a modern world, does it tend to focus on individuals or families and neighborhoods? Yeah, we, this is, I mean, re, to read this is to become aware how far we've come from the Christian Middle Ages and the world shortly following that. Because Jane Austen presents this rich world of people. She's, she's aware of everything. There, Henry James said, nothing escapes her. She sees everything in this large world. It makes our world richer. It makes us more attentive to details. What's going on with people when we watch them at a party, when we're gathered, or... So we're, we're not in a world in which we're narrowed down to an individual. We're a part of a large world where everybody matters. They all have names. It's like the Iliad. They all have names. And we learn to see their characteristics. And all of them have to do with marriage or families. Balls, dinners. Hold that up to our world. Jane Austen is helping us to see love in a very, very different way. Okay? Let me stop there. When we pick up next time, I'll start going through the novel more closely the way that we do, and I'll pick up some of these things. But I just want to get those sort of large perspectives out. Okay? We don't meet next week, um, and we don't meet the following week. Because you guys have three weeks off, I'm giving a quiz when you come back. If you guys don't finish this novel in two weeks, 